0: Heavenly Father, we thank you for the joy it is uh, to be returning to fellowship face-to-face. We thank you that the COVID situation seems to be uh, improving, uh, and because of that, we're able to do this and even sing together tonight, and we thank you for those many blessings. But now, whether we're here in the building or in the overflow hall or at home, help us to understand your word correctly tonight, but more than that, help us to respond to it in faith and obedience, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. At the moment, uh, it's hard to imagine uh, a large crowd gathering along the streets. Uh, the idea of crowds packed together makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable in uh, the world of COVID. Uh, and even pre-COVID, what used to get called ticker tape parades had sort of gone out of fashion. Do you Remember ticker tape parades? Back uh, when I worked in the city, it was like every second week Australia would win some obscure sporting event and they'd decide we needed a parade down George Street to celebrate you know, us beating some country that doesn't even have swimming pools or something in some sporting event. And uh, they'd give, what you'd do is you would throw out all the shredded paper onto the street. I don't know where this idea came from. It's a bit hard now. We don't have shredded paper anymore. You have to throw out your hard drives or whatever. But um, uh, it happened all the time. That seems to have gone by the by. But the idea is these people have done something impressive. They've done something worthy of our honour and respect. So we celebrate them. Apparently when the Queen first came to Australia in 1954, I won't ask if there's anyone who uh, remembers that, but uh, people came from all over the place. I think we've got a picture of it, Tom, on the screen there. People came from all over the place to line the streets of Sydney just to catch a glimpse of the then very young Queen. Uh, apparently there were 1.8 million people in Sydney at that time and 1 million people came out that day as the Queen came out on a boat on the harbour and then along George Street and all that sort of thing and the Prime Minister at the time Sir Robert Menzies he was famously so struck by it that he said I did but see her passing by and yet I love her till I die. Prime Ministers don't talk like that anymore but uh, that was how special they thought it was to have the Queen come and visit Well, today, as we pick up the story in Matthew's Gospel, there's something of that in this event. It gets called Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Uh, And To understand what's going on here, you have to remember Jerusalem was the centre for God's people. Jerusalem was God's city. It was the city of David. It was the, the, the city of God's king. And more than that, it was the place where the temple was. It was where you came to do business with God. It's where you came to meet with God. But up until now, Jesus has been a bit of a mystery to the people of Jerusalem. Uh, he'd been mainly up in Galilee, which is sort of like the back box. It's of like if you were in Australia and he was doing his ministry up around Dubbo and up around Tamworth or wherever else. Sorry if you come from there, but uh, not in Sydney. But now he's coming to where the people expect him to be. They've heard about him in Jerusalem. Earlier in Matthew's Gospel, a few times it said they'd sent up scribes and Pharisees to test him. So they'd gone up to try and trick Jesus and catch him out, but they hadn't been able to succeed. Now, though, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. It's down in terms, but they always say up to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is up on a, on, a, on a hill, on a mountain. And you can imagine the stories that were coming. People were talking about Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. Uh, because he'd just been in Jericho that's like the last major town before he gets to Jerusalem he's just healed two blind men uh, made them see and they would have been hearing these stories like this as he's making his way there and the thing is Jesus wasn't coming alone he was with his disciples obviously as well but more than that he would have actually been coming with thousands of other pilgrims from Galilee and from all over Judea because it was coming up to the Passover festival And the Passover festival is the most important Jewish festival. Uh, It's where they remember what happened in the book of Exodus in your Old Testament, where God passed over the Israelites when he judged the Egyptians. And then he brought them out of slavery in Egypt, took them to the promised land through the desert. And it was the great annual festival. And at that time, the population of, of Jerusalem times by like 50 went from a few thousand to hundreds of thousands of people just for this festival. So here is Jesus, he's walking with this crowd as one of the pilgrims, if you like, and that's where we pick up the story. So come with me to Matthew 21 from verse 1 and it says, when they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives. So where we are is we're right on the doorstep of Jerusalem. Bethpage is a separate village but it's really like a, an outer suburb of Jerusalem uh, and the Mount of Olives is the mountain you stand on, and you just cross a small valley and then you're there at Jerusalem. So you can still go there today and stand on the top of the Mount of Olives and you look across, today you see the Dome of the Rock, a, a Muslim shrine sadly. But back then what you saw was the Temple of God that's all you would have seen. You would have seen the walls of Jerusalem and the temple of God. So here is Jesus and he's standing there. He could have thrown a, a rock if he had a good arm and got it into Jerusalem. But before he goes in, Jesus does something strange. Look at verse 1 again. There it says, Jesus then sent two disciples, telling them, go into the village ahead of you. At once you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you should say that the Lord needs them and immediately he will send them. Now what's going on here? Uh, people debate what, G- what Jesus has done here. They debate whether Jesus set this up. So some people think he must have already paid for these two donkeys uh, and so when his disciples go, they're just taking what's already his Uh, And people even think that that saying the Lord needs them was like the code word he'd set up with the person who was minding the donkey. So when they heard that, it's like it's okay to let them go. I think actually what you're seeing here is sort of a small miracle where Jesus knows that the donkeys will be there. Uh, I mean, it wouldn't be the, the first time Jesus has done something amazing, known where someone, someone or something is before it's happened. If you can walk on water, you can arrange for a couple of donkeys sort of thing. Uh, but I, I, I sort of have this impression of it, and maybe I'm wrong, but a little bit like, you know, in Star Wars, when Obi-Wan Kenobi says, these are not the droids you're looking for. I, I just think it'd be great if that was the thing. It's the Lord needs them. Oh, you can have the donkeys, you know, like that. But it doesn't matter. Uh, so you don't have to agree with my Jedi theory to uh, understand the scriptures. The point is, Jesus is stage managing this. That's the point it's made, making. Jesus is making sure this happens. not some accident that he just happens to ride up into Jerusalem uh, on a young donkey. He didn't sprain his ankle and someone kindly said, here, use my donkey. This is really intentional. And so the important question is, why? Why is Jesus so keen to ensure that as he comes to Jerusalem, he rides up that hill on a donkey. Well, the answer's there in verse 4. Look there. It says, this took place so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled. You have to remember, the Old Testament prophets had looked forward to a day when God would save his people. There were these wonderful promises of God that that, that God's people were looking forward to and there are all sorts of parts to it but at the very centre was that God would send the Messiah, that God would send the Christ. Literally it means the anointed one And, and he would come and he would save God's people, he would bring God's blessing, he would fulfil all of God's promises. It started back in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, For the people who've been doing Intro to the Bible with me, I hope you remember that chapter. It's so important. It starts in two Samuel seven when God said to King David, "I will raise up a descendant of yours, and he will rule forever—not just for a long time. He will rule forever." And and the prophets they then expanded on that prophet promise. So, if you read the prophet Isaiah, he, he says all sorts of things about this son of David, this one descended from David who will bring God's kingdom, who will offer forgiveness to anyone who wants it, who will heal people from all their illnesses and all these things. Well, one of the more obscure prophecies about the Messiah is in Zechariah chapter 9 and that's what Matthew quotes here in verse 5. It's our reading from before and I want you to turn back there in your Bibles now. It's really easy to find the book of Zechariah because Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. So if you turn back and get to your Old Testament, the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi and the one before that is Zechariah. So you've only got to turn back two books, Zechariah chapter 9, it was read for us before. Now, Zechariah was written about 500 years before Jesus, about 500 years before what's being described in Matthew's Gospel happened. And where it is in the history of God's people is they've just come back from exile, so they got judged by God for their sin and sent off into exile in Babylon. The temple got destroyed. The city of Jerusalem got destroyed. God, 70 years later, brought them back and they've rebuilt the city walls. They've rebuilt the temple. Uh, but frankly, it's pretty lame compared to what it was like before. So people would sit there people who remembered what the temple used to look like and they would cry. They would say, this, this is not a temple. This is second rate. And this this city, Jerusalem, it's second rate compared to what we used to have. And more than that, most of the rest of the promised land wasn't theirs. There were all these other nations living there and they were actually oppressing God's people. And so they're wondering, is this it? You know, is this as good as it gets? The prophets told us of all these wonderful things that would happen, but this is worse than it was before. But then God spoke through Zechariah the prophet and he said, remember, you're still waiting for it. still waiting in particular for a king the Messiah so look at Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 and it says rejoice greatly daughter Zion that's the people of Jerusalem shout in triumph daughter Jerusalem look your king is coming to you he is righteous and victorious humble and riding on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey and what will this king do? What will this king bring? Well, you can read all of Zechariah 9 again later on. But for now, just look at verse 10 to get a taste. It says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, the bow of war will be removed. So saying, saying, I'll, I'll deal with all your enemies. I'll, I'll put an end to all your enemies. And more than that, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His dominion will extend from sea to sea, from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. It's poetic language and it's using images from their time that they understand. But you can't miss what it's saying. It's saying, this king will deal with the enemies of God's people, but more than that, he'll then bring peace. See, and his kingdom is not just going to be for Israel. His kingdom, it says, is going to go to the ends of the earth. It's going to cover the whole earth and it's going to include people from every nation and every tribe and every tongue. The Messiah is actually not just going to be the answer to Israel's problems. The Messiah is going to be the answer to the whole world's problems. But if you go back to verse 9, look back at verse 9 of Zechariah 9, what's the point of the donkey in the prophecy? What's making the point that this king will be a strange paradox? You see, you don't think a king's riding on donkeys, Kings ride on big white horses, you know, kings ride on impressive animals. See, it's making the point this king will be righteous, this king will be victorious, he's going to be strong, he's going to be powerful, he'll be breaking people's bows in half, he'll be mighty but at the same time he will be humble. He doesn't ride on a white stallion, he rides on a donkey. That's the way God's saviour will appear, not in glory but in humility. So turn back now to Matthew 21 with that in mind from Zechariah chapter 9, why does Jesus arrange the donkeys? Well again at verse 4, he's consciously fulfilling the prophecy. See by doing this Jesus is making a statement that anyone there who knows their Old Testament, who knows the prophet Zechariah will get straight away. Up until now he's kept it quiet that he's the Messiah people would shout out, you're the son of David, you're the Messiah. He'd say, don't tell anyone because he didn't. his time hadn't come. It wasn't time for him yet to do what he'd come to do. But now he's letting the cat out of the bag. For those with eyes to see, for those who knew their Bibles, Jesus is saying, I am the King. I am who they're saying I am. I am the one who the prophet said would come to bring God's kingdom. I am that humble Messiah. And so if we move on in the story, go to verse 6. It says, the disciples went and did just as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, then they laid their robes on them and he sat on them. See, they're saying, hang on, a king needs something to sit on, on his donkey. They're recognising what's going on and the crowds know something's going on. Remember, this is the people who've come with Jesus. This is people who've seen his miracles, who's heard, who've heard his teaching and it seems they've worked it out. Look at verse 8. It says, a very large crowd spread their robes on the road. Others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them on the road. See, that's what they did for kings in the Old Testament. It's what they did for David. It's what they did to Jehu, the king and two kings. They did this. It's like an impromptu red carpet. And then they start shouting. Look at verse 9. It says, then the crowds who went ahead of him and those who followed kept shouting, Hosanna, which means God save us. That's what it means literally, save us. But it'd become like just a shout of praise. We even use it still in our songs. Sometimes the word Hosanna is in our songs still. It means praise God, but literally save us. Hosanna to the son of David. He who comes in the name of the Lord is the blessed one. Hosanna in the highest heaven. What they're doing there is they're quoting Psalm 118, which is a psalm pilgrims would say as they went up into Jerusalem for a festival. But do you notice what they add in? If you look at your Bible there, does your Bible have some parts in bold and some parts not in bold? The parts in bold are the bits that are from the psalm. They're the bits that are actually quoting the Old Testament. But do you see what they add in that's not in bold? They're saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They add that bit in. They're actually saying, you are the king. They're not saying God save us, they're saying you save us, Jesus. You are God's king. And so you can imagine Jerusalem that day, the people in the city would be saying, what's going on? What's what's this noise? What's this commotion? In verse 10, it says, the whole city was shaken. And I love this. I love the fact that the word for shaken there is the word we get the word seismic from. That's the word. It's it's the word we use to describe an earthquake. Uh, So the city was shaken by what's going on. And, And even if the people in the city didn't know who it was yet, they knew he was important. So look at verse 11, it says, and the crowds kept saying, I think that's the crowds in the city, they kept saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Now it could be there that they're thinking Jesus is actually the fulfilment of another Old Testament prophecy. You see, in Deuteronomy 18, Moses talked about how there would be a prophet greater than him who would come. And so it might be that they're saying Jesus is that prophet, the prophet, rather than a prophet. And if they were saying that, they'd be right, because Jesus is the fulfilment of that promise, just like he is of every other promise of the Old Testament. But I think it's more they're saying Jesus is a prophet. It's like some people are not quite joining in on the whole Son of David thing, that that he's the Messiah, but they all know at the very least, he's that prophet you've heard about, that guy you've heard about doing miracles, speaking God's word from up in Galilee, from the town of Nazareth. So imagine being in Jerusalem that day. Can can you imagine the expectation as this is happening? What is Jesus going to do? Lots of them are thinking, is he going to kick out the Romans? Is he finally going to make us a great nation again? Other people are thinking, is he going to go into the temple and and kick out all the Jewish leadership, the corrupt religious leaders? What's he going to do? The sense of anticipation would have been overwhelming. You'd almost say seismic. That's why they use the word. But that's where we're leaving the story tonight. I'm doing to you what used to happen before you had Netflix, where you had to wait next week for the next episode. Uh, You can't just binge watch it. Uh, But what are we to get from just this little story? Because next week we're going to see him march into the temple and cause chaos. But this little moment, what do we get? Well, I hope already you've seen the way Jesus fulfills the promises of the Old Testament, which is enough of a lesson and is amazing enough. But in addition to that, what are we to take away? I've got two final reflections. The first one is Jesus is worthy of all glory and all praise and all honour and all worship and all whatever else you can think of. In many ways, this little story is a rare moment in the Gospels. Usually, people are abusing Jesus. Usually, people are denying Jesus. Usually, people are are, are, are saying, "I I don't believe him." But at this one moment, Jesus is given the honor and the glory and the worship, if you like, that he deserves. In our staff meeting on Monday, as we read the passage together, Jana made that comment. She said she loves this passage first for just for one moment, Jesus gets treated how he's meant to be treated, and that's true. Jesus is the King of Kings. For this moment, people recognized it. Jesus is the Lord of Lords. Jesus is the one who fulfills all of God's promises. Jesus is the only way to be saved. And so, Jesus is worthy of all praise. Jesus is worthy of laying out your coat on the road as he comes into town. And the thing is, all the world will see that when he returns in glory. This little moment is like a snapshot of what will happen when the heavens open and when the trumpet sounds and when Jesus returns in glory to judge the earth. Look at how Philippians, it'll come up on the screen, Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 to 11 puts it. It says, for this reason God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When it says those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, it means every person who has ever lived, every person who's living at that time, every person who's ever lived throughout all history, every person will see Jesus for who he is, the King of the world. Every person will bow the knee and worship him. Sadly, some of those knees will not be bowing voluntarily. But even people who have rejected Christ, even people who have mocked Christ on that day will see that they were wrong and that Jesus is the Lord of Lords. But for us now, praise God, we can start giving Jesus the worship and praise he deserves now. That's why we sing Jesus' praise. That's why we've been looking forward to being able to sing again, isn't it? because we want to sing the praises of the Lord Jesus, because he is worthy of all praise. That's why we declare his name to the world. When, when you share the gospel with people, when you tell people about Jesus, why are you doing it? If I asked you, why do you evangelise? Why do you share the gospel with people? I think most people would say, because we love people because we want them to find the salvation that that we have found in Christ. They need to know about Jesus if they're to find the forgiveness and the hope we've found. But there's actually a better reason even than that. It's because we want Jesus to get the praise and the glory and the honour that he deserves. That's why we declare his name to anyone and want everyone to come to know him. But secondly and lastly, another thing to take away, is to see that their praise was actually premature. So you get the idea that these people had got the victorious part of the picture from Zechariah 9, but they hadn't quite got the humble part of the picture. They hadn't quite understood that Jesus wasn't going to come and fix all their problems, that Jesus wasn't going to come and set up an earthly kingdom. They hadn't quite understood that actually he was going to be rejected and that actually he was going to be killed. And it's noticeable that in just a few days' time, in less than a week, another crowd was yelling, crucify him. And these people were all either joining in with them or staying very quiet. And it all comes back to the fact that Jesus is the humble Messiah. He is the Messiah who comes on a donkey, the Messiah who gives everything up and is willing to die to pay the price for our sins. See, what actually makes Jesus glorious is his death. That's his most glorious moment. Just look one verse earlier in Philippians chapter 2 on the screen, verse 8 it says, He, Jesus, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross, for this reason... God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name. For this reason, every knee will bow and worship him. So yes, Jesus is the king, but it's the fact that he humbled himself, even to the point of death, that is what makes him our saviour. That is his most glorious moment. And that's why he's worthy of praise. And so in the end, the application, the take home message from this passage is really, really simple. Let's praise the name of Jesus. Let's join together and praise the name of Jesus. Let's shout the name of Jesus from the rooftops. Hosanna to the son of David. Praise Jesus. He is our humble saviour. Amen.